0: This is Francis. Today we're going to talk about two chapters from the book Religion and Ethnicity in Canada, which was published in 2009 by University of Toronto Press. We'll start with chapter 4 by the author Matthew Boisvert, and the chapter is called Buddhists in Canada: Impermanence in a Land of Change. So there aren't so many publications that I could find on Buddhism and race in Canada in particular, but this book, Religion and Ethnicity in Canada, has a couple of chapters that I thought might be relevant for our course. After a brief story about a Cambodian woman from Montreal and her perspectives on attending a Buddhist temple there... The author of this uh, fourth chapter moves on to a short summary of Buddhism uh, beginning with its origins in India. He points out how as Buddhism moves around the world, it has to adapt and change in each new region, as we've learned. Buddhism is really, therefore, substantially different in each place and at different times in history. The author says that in addition to meditation, devotion, and philosophy, The characteristic that comes to mind when we think of Buddhism worldwide is the absence of an authority overseeing the development of this originally Indian tradition. Even within a particular region, such as Canada, there's tremendous diversity in how people understand and practice Buddhism. At the time of this uh, chapter, in 2009, the distribution of Buddhists in Canada was about 42% Chinese, 34% Southeast Asian, and 10% Chinese. Uh, sorry, Japanese. Of course, there are other kinds of Buddhists in Canada, but those were the largest groups in Canada at that time. The next chapter we'll look at uh, focuses on Chinese Buddhist traditions in Canada, and so this chapter mainly looks at Japanese and Vietnamese Buddhist traditions here. First, A bit of immigration history. The first groups of Buddhists to settle in Canada came from China and Japan to British Columbia in the late 1800s, with later waves of immigration in the early 1900s. Many of the earliest Japanese immigrants came here for economic reasons, wanting to do temporary work here and send money home, and then expecting to return to Japan. Most of them at that time were fishermen and farmers. Following the Great Depression after World War I, Japanese immigration was almost totally stopped, although it increased slowly in subsequent decades. The story of Vietnamese immigration is different. Some of you might know that Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos were part of the French Empire for almost 100 years until 1954. After independence, the country boundaries were redivided, and North Vietnam had a communist government, while South Vietnam came to be supported by the United States. When American troops were sent there in 1965, a war started between the North and the South. This is what we call the Vietnam War. After 1975, many people from Southeast Asia that were terribly affected by that terrible war left the region as refugees, some of them settling in Canada. Many of them ended up in Quebec, with some also in Ottawa and Toronto. Around 1980, a second wave of Vietnamese refugees arrived in Canada as part of an exodus of about half a million people fleeing the authoritarian regime in Vietnam at the time. Since that time, immigration continued as Canada received Vietnamese immigrants each year. The article or this chapter also talks a bit about immigrants from Sri Lanka and Tibetan immigrants, and I'll let you read those details. Keep in mind that this book is not recent. It was published in 2009, so the numbers provided really aren't up to date. Still, the fact of the incredible diversity of Buddhist practice and practitioners in Canada is still very true, maybe even more so now. Take a look at the descriptions in this article of the various celebrations held by different Buddhist groups in Canada, including certain days of the Vietnamese or Japanese calendars, for example, like New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, or the fall and spring equinoxes, which are a time to honor ancestral spirits. Many Canadian Buddhist temples have established a practice of weekend services, possibly because of an effort to match the Christian model of Sunday church services. Another difference about Buddhism in Canada compared to in Japan or Vietnam, for example, is that there are relatively few monks and nuns here. And another difference is the role of women. The author of this article points out that in Cambodia and Vietnam, the role of lay women is primarily restricted to household duties, service to the monastic community, and devotional activities. Although in Canada, of course, women take on many more roles in religion and society generally. Personally, I would have liked to hear a lot more on the the topic of the changing role of women in Canadian Buddhist communities. I feel that this chapter really doesn't do that topic justice at all. There's also a short section here about racism and discrimination. I'm sure you're all aware of the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes in North America in the last year, including some terrible events just in the last week. There's a long history to anti-Asian racism going all the way back to the very beginnings of Asian immigration in North America. In the late 1800s, discrimination against these new immigrants was formalized through the Provincial Elections Act of British Columbia of 1895. It stated that no, this is a quote, no Chinaman, Japanese, or Indian shall have his name placed on the register of voters for any electoral district or be entitled to vote in any election. That's the end of that quote. White Canadians, who were overwhelmingly Christian at the time, feared immigration from China and Japan, which they called the yellow peril. And resentment against Asian immigration only grew over time. The author of this article suggests that part of the reason for their othering, the othering of uh, Asian immigrants, was that they were Buddhist, that is to say, not Christian. During World War II, many thousands of Japanese Canadians were expelled from their homes, sent to farms as essentially slave laborers, or sent to internment camps, essentially prisons. As this article explains... Uh, The RCMP was given expanded powers to search without warrant, impose a curfew, and confiscate property. A custodian of enemy property was authorized to hold all land and property in trust, and at a later date to sell all the property without the owner's consent. I'll leave you to read more details of this terrible story in Canadian history in the chapter itself. The chapter then talks about some scandals that have taken place more recently in Tibetan Buddhist community, is communities in North America. And then it gives a very brief overview of the so-called convert communities that are most prominent in Canada. The next chapter we'll look at is the fifth chapter in this collection uh, called Religion and Ethnicity in Canada, and this is a co-authored chapter by David Lai, Jordan Paper, and Li Chuang Paper, and the chapter is called The Chinese in Canada, Their Unrecognized Religion. In this chapter, the authors are going to talk about why it's been so hard for the Canadian government and Canadian people to identify and describe the religion of so many Chinese Canadians. The chapter starts with a quick overview of the history of Chinese immigration to Canada. This started in the late 18th century when thousands of laborers came from China to work in gold mines and then to build transcontinental railroads. And then later, they started opening laundries and restaurants. This period of immigration uh, ended with what was called the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1923, which prohibited Chinese immigration. From that point until the late 1940s, Chinese-Canadian children raised in Canada faced terrible levels of prejudice and discrimination, which was so bad that they really had to confine themselves to Chinatown neighborhoods. In the 1950s and 60s, immigration policies relaxed a bit, In 1967, the government's new immigration policy allowed immigrants of certain educational qualifications or people uh, with certain skills, occupational skills, to enter the country. So Chinese immigrants during this period were professionals like doctors or engineers, and they were coming from mainland China as well as from Taiwan and Hong Kong and Southeast Asia. In the 1980s, then, a new government program called the Immigrant Investor Program encouraged people to invest in Canada, and this attracted a lot of wealthy Chinese from Hong Kong and Taiwan in particular. I'll leave you to read the rest of this section yourself, but remember again that the numbers cited here are not up to date. The next section in this chapter has a very quick overview of what the authors call the worldview of Chinese religion. Again, you can read a bit more here about attitudes, about the family and the afterlife, and about attitudes to nature and the cosmos in relation to the family, and about the changing relationships throughout history between Buddhism and Taoism and the state. The chapter describes the practice of keeping an altar in the home, which usually includes Buddhist deities, other Chinese deities, objects kept to revere deceased ancestors and other devotional objects. A central religious practice for many Chinese people is to make offerings to that altar in their home. There's a short description too of other kinds of rituals that might require religious specialists. So for example, a feng shui specialist would be called to determine the correct placement of a grave. And then at a funeral, a Taoist priest might conduct rituals, but also Buddhist monks or nuns might do some chanting. So there's a mixture of religious specialists that can be called upon for different purposes. Chinese medicine, martial arts, calligraphy, painting, and music are also all intermixed with different kinds of religious expertise. So if you take a careful look at this section, you'll see how complicated it is to identify one particular religious identity with a Chinese population or even an individual Chinese family. In the next section of this chapter on Chinese religion among Chinese Canadians, the authors talk about how discriminatory immigration laws in the 1900s had a damaging effect on the establishment and survival of many Chinese community institutions and practices. Once immigration laws relaxed a bit and a new wave of immigrants began to settle in Canada, many new Chinese temples started to be built. Now, some of these are very large, elaborately decorated and quite wealthy. Maybe some of you have been to these grand institutions in Thornhill, North York, or Mississauga, or in the Vancouver or Victoria areas. Another very publicly visible manifestation of Chinese religion are the festivals that take place at key moments in the Chinese lunar calendar. The authors of this chapter also talk about the importance of understanding Chinese relationships with food as a key part of religious practice. Next, we come to a section in the chapter on discrimination. The authors write that, Chinese have suffered various types of discrimination in Canada, discriminatory immigration laws, economic exploitation, restrictions placed on their daily lives and communal practices, And finally, the denial of the reality of their own religion, an essential element of their identity and dignity as persons. Starting from the earliest phase of immigration, Chinese railway laborers were paid very little, and discrimination only got worse from that point onward. Please read this short section very carefully, and you'll learn, for example, about a terrible moment in Victoria where Chinese residents were prohibited from proper proper burial practices, which is a serious affront to one of the central components of religious practices for Chinese communities, and also a front to basic human dignity. And you'll read about the consequences of the Canadian government's inability to understand or figure out how to classify Chinese religion and how that affects people still today. This refusal to accept Chinese religion has its roots in centuries of Christian missionary activity in China, where the Chinese learned that from a Western perspective, their religion was not a defined religion. In the 20th century, many non-Chinese Westerners came to think that all Chinese were Buddhists. I'm going to read a few sentences from this section where the authors explain how Western scholars have essentially created Chinese religions that didn't or don't exist in Chinese cultures themselves. <clears throat> they write, quote, These Western observers of Chinese culture failed to understand that for Chinese lay Buddhists, Buddhism was an adjunct to the religion of the family. Buddhism offered additional rituals to enhance the lives of the family dead, as well as for personal salvation, but it, not, it did not replace the religion of the family. As for Taoism, only ordained her- hereditary priests or monks and nuns of monastic forms are termed Taoists by Chinese However, several Western scholars have been adopted into hereditary Taoist priestly families, and on the completion of their training have been ordained as Taoist priests. In their books, they've then taken a Western sectarian attitude that Chinese religion is essentially Taoist. With with regard to Confucianism, recently some Western and Western-based Chinese scholars and most Christian theologians have been participating in the creation of a putative religion called Confucianism. It's quite striking how closely this religion, unheard of as such in Chinese culture, resembles a very liberal Protestant Christianity. I hope you can see how damaging this is and how, as the authors put it, the inability to have their religion recognized in Canada informally in public discourse and formally by Statistics Canada is a subtle form of discrimination, as it denies Chinese acceptance of the very basis of their culture and their self-identity. Personally, I'd say it's not a subtle form of discrimination. It's just outright racist. The authors say that this also reflects an often tacit insistence that Westerners know more about Chinese culture than the Chinese themselves do. And by Westerners, of course, they mean white people. So we can see this as yet another example of how white supremacy works. This section is followed by a too short, in my opinion, section on women, and then a section on intergenerational issues. I'd like to close my comments here with a wish that I had proposed a different set of readings on this topic, or really that we had had much more time to learn more about this, especially given the recent wave of anti-Asian racism that we've been experiencing. Really, all the topics we've studied this semester are so vitally important right now, and it's just so important, uh, imperative that we do what we can to educate ourselves and support each other and hear each other and learn from each other's experiences with racism and with anti-racist work. I've added a few uh, new links and a few additional resources on this on our course webpage for this unit. And I hope you take some time to have a look at them and learn more.